Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Hey, it's Scott Lips, and welcome back, friends, to another episode of Spin Magazine's Lip Service. Good to be here. Excited for today's guest. You know him as the lead guitarist and founding member of Journey since the beginning, about 50 years in the business. Neil Sean is one of the most important rock guitar players in our lifetime. He's a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer as of 2017. Journey have sold about 100 million records globally and have had 25 gold and platinum albums and over a billion streams, making them one of the best-selling bands of all time. Excited to have him here on the show today. Chop it up, all things Journey, his solo record, the tour, the new record. Coming up in just a moment, Neil Sean of Journey. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Our show today is brought to you by the fine folks at Thursday's Boot Company. You guys have seen me rocking these boots in every other picture I have on Instagram. I'm always repping them. Thursday's Boots is a bootstrap startup that makes the best handcrafted boots and sells them direct to consumer at some of the lowest markups in the footwear industry. Thursday's Boots tagline is highest quality, honest prices because they use some of the best materials like full grain leather, supple glove leather lining, and gold standard Goodyear welt construction. Thursday's Boot Company sells their boots at prices starting at just $149 with free shipping and returns. They've been featured in all the best fashion press from Esquire to GQ to Cosmo and Vogue. More importantly, they've gotten over 20,000 five-star reviews from real customers. Thursday's boots are perfect for people who understand quality and don't want to pay a high retail markup for a great-looking pair of boots that are built to last. So check them out at Thursday's Boots on Instagram. My favorite shoes, my favorite boots. You always see me repping them. You'll love it. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Hey, it's Scott. Welcome back to another episode of Spin Magazine's Lip Service. I'm joined today by the one, the only, Mr. Neil Sean. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well, Scott. Yourself? Doing great. Great to see you. And we were just catching up and talking about, we have a lot of mutual friends, Neil. Um, most importantly, I was talking about Marty Fredrickson. And Randy Jackson is a great friend. He lives in my building, believe it or not. Yeah, I was just talking to uh, the King last night. I was talking to Randy. And he said, hey, you're going to be talking to my buddy, Scott. And... Uh, you know, I didn't know you knew Marty too, but we did like we just talked about. I had a great experience with Marty where I actually like extended my stay. I went there to write for a couple of days with him in Nashville a couple of years ago, and we came up with a slew of songs. And uh, a lot of it was, you know, kind of Santana based, Journey based. It was kind of like all over the place. And like you said, and knowing that you're a drummer, and you know, um, he programs the shit out of drums, man. I was like, what? So I did like these these uh, sort of Latin rock up-tempo songs with him that I had Greg Raleigh in mind. And um, he started programming like timbales, you know? <laughs> and it was like, it was off the hook. I mean, at fireworks, it was happening, you know? Yeah, he's and then incredible. the guy sings, he sings his ass off. It was great. He's amazing. And we can't forget, like we talked about our, our great friend Randy Jackson, one of the greatest guys ever. So me and Randy talk journey constantly. And, you know, I want to talk to you about what's going on. Obviously, the new record just dropped or is dropping, I believe, in like a week. By the time this show comes out, I think the record's going to be, out, I think, July 7th or 8th. Uh, drops on the 8th. Yeah, on the 8th. OK, there's so much to get into your history with Journey. Obviously, 100 million records sold an incredible career, one of the greatest guitar players of all time. And yeah, so much that I want to talk to you about. So let's start off by saying, actually, I had the pleasure of seeing you with Def Leppard. I think it was maybe, what, three or four years ago? Yeah. Incredible show, uh, an incredible catalog of hits. A lot of new Journey fans there, you think, when you get when you did that tour with Def Leppard? I don't think so, man. No? <laughs> you know, I was wondering, uh, because, you know, it's been a long time since we've been back in stadiums. And that's when I was starting to know how much bigger the band was and had been for the past decade before that, where we were stuck in sheds, you know? Yeah. It's like I said, well, it's gonna be, you know, I'll be, I can pretty much tell when you get on stage and you start playing a song like 
lights or something, you know, where the place is going to light up. And man, it was like the height of the 80s all over again. And it was like our audience as much as Def Leppard's. And so now we just experienced that again, you know, after moving to AEG, I moved away. I got rid of management, managing myself now, Amazing. you know, and, and went to AEG and they stuck us back in arenas and we're selling out arenas immediately. Incredible. And so, you know, they're going, wow, we thought you guys would do good. We didn't know you'd do this good. And now, you know, we got the right in front house mixer um, that is making us sound like a record every night. And so I'm like getting so bold to say that uh, I would love to put more money into our website and hook it up to our YouTube channel and really start, you know, diving into our catalog and playing a lot more different stuff every night and letting people have it for free like the Grateful Dead did. Because yeah. I think Journey, actually, a lot of people don't know it, but I do, that we're one of the most, the greatest jam bands ever when given the opportunity to do that and stretch out. No question. I don't want to talk about that. Initially, the band started out that way. But take me back to the very beginning. The show is a bit of a brief history of your life. Talk to me about how you grew up. I think you grew up in, in Oklahoma, right? Well, no, I was born in, in an Air Force base. I uh, did never really grew up there. Uh, my, my father was uh, a leader of the big band there. And my mother was a singer. And that's where they met uh, when I was a twinkle in his eye. <laughs> I was born in the Air Force base. Uh, they left at that point. Um, we moved back east. I lived in New Jersey uh, with them, in a little tiny house, and and uh, played in that neighborhood with the kids there till I was about six. And uh, then we moved out to the West Coast and uh, moved down uh, south of San Francisco to Hollister, uh, where my my mother's mother was from, my grandmother and. Uh, a lot of her brothers and sisters and my cousins. I had a huge Italian family down there. And so I grew up down there. And uh, my, you know, before I started playing guitar, one of my cousins, you know, that I hung out with was playing guitar. He was in this Paul Revere and the Raiders uh, cologne band playing in a, you know, a roller skating ring on Friday nights. And I was with my other cousins roller skating around. I wasn't playing guitar yet or anything, but I got curious and I said, show me something on the guitar. And he showed me uh, Gloria and Louie Louie. That was it. Then I was hooked after that. <laughs> that was it. But early on, you got into blues, obviously. I mean, a lot of your background, Paige, Clapton, Beck, you know, B.B. Kings. Talk about a little bit how, you know, the first, besides your cousin, when you first got into music, what really was, you know, the thing that sort of, you know, you knew that that was a life determined for you. The blues, yeah, the blues I really got like immediately once I, you know, um, was so attracted to it. And, and you know, it was like Albert King, B.B. King, uh, Michael Bloomfield. Um, and I was listening to a lot of different genres, but the blues was the first thing that really hit me that made me, you know, want to play. I felt like it was such an expressive side of guitar. It was almost like if I could sing that well. You know, it's like singing through yeah. the guitar and it's true, you know, pure emotion through guitar. Uh, and so that's never really left me, you know, those are still my roots. But then, you know, all the, the cats came over from England at that time, uh, Jimmy Page and Beck and Clapton uh, and, and Jimi Hendrix. And, you know, the electric blues then was, you know, dominating the United States. Yeah. And, you know, Jimmy comes out with, you know, are you experienced? And I'm like, <laughs> I wasn't, but now I am. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people don't know you were actually studying like soul singers like Aretha Franklin back then, too, not just guitar players. And you were sort of listening to their intonation and, and how they sang to sort of get your voicing on the guitar, too. Right. Absolutely. I still do. Uh, like there's a song on our new record that, you know, Randy Jackson played on the whole album, the bass. And one of the first songs that I wrote with Narda going into this project was Holding On. And, you know, it's a, it's a really a heavier, powerful riff, something that you would not normally see on a Journey record. 
But, you know, after we got into it, it was one of the last songs we finished. That song sat there for the whole duration of, you know, a year and a half while we were, you know, piecing this record together with Nardi and I and everybody else working together. And uh, Randy came up with the chorus of that when he replaced my bass on it. And uh, he sang the chorus and I went, wow, that's really cool. So then I proceeded to try to come up with the right vocal melody for it. And I tried a bunch of different things throughout all those months. And I got kept on getting closer and closer. And as the record was you know, coming to a near end, I tried one last scoop at it. And I was like, let me try this one last time, Narda. And I thought Aretha Franklin definitely. And I was like, you wanna lay? You know, and, and there it was, you know, and so I just kind of scattered it out and um, that's what ended up being on the record, you know. Amazing. And so, yeah, she's embedded in my soul always. Yes, definitely. So you start playing at 10 years old. Obviously, you grew up in a musical family. And I think you were kind of looking at even art and art school at some point, right? And design. Design was a big part of your life growing up early. But you, you joined Santana at 17, which is sort of unheard of, joining a band that major at that, you know, that early an age for you. So how did that all happen? Yeah, talk to me through that whole thing. Well, it happened, uh, I, I'll go back to the beginning, I guess. I was uh, playing in a Bay Area band uh, down in the peninsula. It was the San Mateo area where I was living with my folks at the time. Uh, I had joined a band called Old Davis and uh, 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 the bass player in the band, uh, nickname was Nine Year, uh, Bob Woodridge. And he was friends with Greg Raleigh and Michael Street. So we were playing at a club down in Palo Alto called the Cop, uh, Poppycock. And uh, he invited, I guess he invited them down to come check us out. And they came down and, and I didn't, you know, I'd never met him before. And they were sitting in the audience and I guess they liked what they heard. And so uh, we hung out afterwards, a club owner, closed down the club and we proceeded to jam into the wee hours of the morning. Amazing. And then very shortly after that, Greg Raleigh and I started hanging out. He started coming to high school and picking me up and I started cutting and going to his father's house. <laughs> it was in San Bruno and he had a piano in there and we'd sit down and just jam for hours. Uh, and then that just kind of, it kept on moving forward. I kept hanging with all these people. And at the time I had met uh, a gentleman by the name of Jackie Villanueva. Uh, him and his brother, John, worked in the Santana road crew. And I was recording in a, a studio down in San Mateo. Uh, and um, Jackie came in and I met him and he said, man, he says, I wanna take you up uh, to the city, San Francisco, and started introducing you in, to you know all the club owners that I know, and I go, well, how am I going to get into a club, man? I'm under <laughs> age, you know. He says I, he goes, I know him. I think they're going to let you do it, and so he took me first off to the Keystone Corner, which was you know Michael Bloomfield's old club in San sure. Francisco, and Elvin Bishop had taken over, and I was a big fan of Elvin, and uh, so you know the club owner agreed that I would go in through the back door, stay down in the cellar and come up, play, go back out through the cellar and don't drink water, don't drink anything. <laughs> and so that's what happened. And, and I got you know, to know Elvin and Elvin kind of took me under his wing through you know, meeting him through Jackie. And um, you know, they started having a shoot off. Like if it was every Tuesday or Thursday night, I can't remember when guitarists would come in from all over the place and mostly older guitarists than myself. And they'd have like a blues shootout and I guess I kept holding the title. And so after about a month of that, Elvin said to me, he says, well, I got a surprise for you. Since you won this thing, he says, we're going to go to Fillmore West. We're going to meet B.B. King tonight. We're going to go on stage and play with him. Amazing. Like, what? <laughs> yeah. So, What was the scene like back then, too? Because obviously I've heard you speak about the Mahavishnu Orchestra and Billy Cobham. But what was the scene that you were really into? Obviously, we were talking a little bit about jam bands, the dead and some of those bands, but fusion seemed to be a big part of your life during that time period too, right? Yeah, I started listening to, you know, a lot of uh, jazz guys. I was listening to, you know, I love Miles Davis, but I started listening to a lot of John McLaughlin, uh, Larry Coryell, 
you know, I always love Wes Montgomery for the smoothness. Uh, but John McLaughlin, you know, and Mahavishnu, I was just like, wow, what <laughs> is that? It was from another planet. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Chick Corea, Return to Forever. I love that first album. I mean, all the Chick stuff, but uh, Billy Connors, the guitar player uh, that was on that first record was just kind of mind boggling to me. Uh, how it was outside and inside at the same time. And so, yeah, the fusion and jazz definitely had a big influence on my playing after I had the blues roots. And that's, you know, I'm kind of there now. I'm, I'm kind of like all over the place. Yeah. You know, definitely dabbled a bit more into, you know, freelancing and not being afraid to play all the wrong notes or all the notes that aren't written into the music. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you end up meeting Carlos Santana, which is, again, you know, at 17, seems unheard of. And tell me about your first meeting with him and how that went. And were you intimidated? Were you excited to meet him? Did you think this is a band I'm going to join? Um, I was really not intimidated. I was pretty, you know, confident as a kid and a player back then. I don't know why, but I, you know, it was instilled in me. Uh, and I felt like I, you know, I'd learned my craft pretty well. Back then I studied many hours a day when other kids were out playing sports and stuff, I was playing the guitar. It was like attached to my hip. And so um, I, I really admired Carlos because he just sounded like so different from every other guitar player I had listened to before. He was more melodic but also rhythmically, he played like so different. Mm -hmm. You know, he had Clapton playing these cross rhythms. You know, across all these African rhythms and Jack Bruce is going off really playing like lead bass in the cream with Ginger Baker, they're going off. Clapton kind of held it down. Yeah. And so to hear Carlos kind of gliding over the top of this incredible rhythm section with Chapito Arez on Timbales and Michael Shreve and, and Carabello on Congas. It was like, wow, you know, uh, just a completely different way of, of looking at music in his melodic sense. And so uh, Carl, I was, I was amazed by him and, and how he just sounded completely all to himself. He didn't remind me of anyone else, just reminded me of Carlos, so the second one. And also the world music influences obviously were something you know, huge for him. Yeah, and he turned me on to all that. Uh, you know, I remember, you know, dropping acid with him and, and traveling from, you know, Milan to Paris on a train and we'd have two suites that we put together. And, you know, we would like lock the doors and he had me listening to Tony Williams' Lifetime. And as we're up the whole night, and watching all the land go by, all this beautiful scenery. We're looking at all these sheep and it was like being on the, in, in the Yellow Submarine movie. <laughs> it was pink, yellow, purple. And so we, we had a lot of great hangs together. And we still do. Carlos and I, I think, are tighter now than ever. And there's a, there's a great story. You're actually sort of asked to join Eric Clapton's band, Derek and the Dominoes, around that time period. Yeah, so talk to me through about that and how did that happen? Because ultimately you chose Santana. But it's pretty amazing at 17 to be getting these kind of offers. It's really kind of unheard of, right? Yeah, I, you know, I think I was just about to be asked to join Santana. At that point, I'd been hanging out with them for a couple months, and they were in Wally Hyder's studio in San Francisco, and uh, finishing up the Abraxas record. It was being mixed upstairs. We were downstairs in another studio. And we were jamming like uh, a lot of bands used to do in those days. Uh, they didn't make demos at home. They went in the studio and blocked it out and spent a shitload of money. There was and, no files being shared. Right. And just kind of like jamming and trying a lot of different ideas. And so we were jamming and, and trying to, I think, come up with new ideas, even though the second album wasn't released. She had a Braxis. Uh, for the third album and you know we were jamming on this tune that ended up being Batuka that was off uh, you know the Santana 3 that I ended up being on and we're in a wee hours of the morning and Clapton walks through the door you know he was a fan of Carlos and the band 
And he walks through the door and he comes in and he sits down and he just starts jamming with Amazing. me. And I'm like thinking, this is so mine, Effie. And I go, this, this is one of my mentors, all time God heroes. And I'm sitting here playing with him and it's just mind fucking. I go, I, I don't, you know, how do you even comprehend that? And so we played and I was actually even scared to talk to him, you know? I was just like, it was surreal. And I didn't believe it was actually happening. So uh, we played for a couple hours and he got up and he said, I gotta, you know, I gotta get back to the hotel. I'm playing tomorrow night, you know, uh, with Derek and the Dominoes at Berkeley Community Theater. Uh, and it, it was really great meeting y'all and out the door he went, you know, and I was just, wow, that's mine effing, you know? But he, and, at some point he sort of asked you maybe to even join the, the group, right? Well, this is then the next day I came into Wally Hyders. We're going to do the same thing and jam again on some new material. And um, there was a note left with the secretary at the front, left for Merrick, and that he wanted me to go over if I could get over there to, to sit in with them. And um, I didn't have a car, didn't have a license yet. <laughs> and so uh, I talked someone into taking me over there and managed to get over there, brought my guitar knocked on the backstage door and they answered. I went in and met him and he goes, oh, great, you made it. And he said, um, uh, well, what songs would you like to play? You know, I said, I'd like to introduce you and have you come on stage. I said, well, I'd like to play them all. <laughs> and he kind of <laughs> laughed, but I knew them all because I studied them, you yeah, know? Yeah, of course. So I wasn't trying to be a smart ass. I was just like, <laughs> I'll play any of them basically is what yeah. I was saying. And um, so he laughed and he said, I'll tell you what, he says, I'm going to go on stage and I'll play like seven or eight uh, of our tunes and then I'm going to introduce you as a good friend. And you just come on and they had an amp set up for me and he did, he introduced me and I proceeded to play the whole rest of the show. Incredible. And, and I guess he liked what he heard because he kept on letting me take a, a lot of solos that night. And I think, you know, I stuck a little fire under him too because yeah. he started playing really, really good. You know, and and um, then after the show, he asked me to go back to the hotel with him. And so we jumped in the station wagon that we had, went back to the hotel and we're hanging out to the wee hours of the morning and just talking about music in general. And he was asking me, he was curious to who I listened to. And I told him that, you know, I listened to him. And, <laughs> you know, he was one of the main guys yeah, that yeah. I listened to and he didn't believe me. And so he had acoustic guitar sitting there and I go, well, I'll show you. And so I said, I learned your stuff note for note off the record. You know, I had a record player in my bedroom and I kind of slept with it on. Even when I was sleeping, I'd take, pull the arm up and let it go over and over and over. So, and actually that works, man. I found out yeah. with Jimmy <laughs> and him by listening while you're sleeping, you're actually learning and you're getting more familiar with stuff, even though you're sleeping. And so... Uh, I played him note for note, uh, Wheels of Fire, you know, uh, uh, Crossroads. And he went, well, fuck me. He's like, you know, he is like, I can't believe that. He goes, well, I think you're taking it further than I did. And I go, no, I don't think so, Eric. I think <laughs> that I just, you know, learned what you did. And, you know, you're the guy that made it up, man. You know, but he gave me one of the greatest compliments I've ever gotten in my life. And you know, then he proceeded to ask me um, if I, I would join the band and move to London. And I was like, just so taken back. I was like, just blown away by the opportunity. And of course I wanted to do it, but also I knew that I was about to be asked by Santana too. And I found out that they had just asked me as well. So I, I, you know, had to decline. I was still in high school at the time. And, um, you know, wasn't certain about, you know, moving to England. And I've been hanging out with, you know, the whole band, Santana band. I was actually living at Greg Raleigh's house at that time. And so I felt like it was the right thing to do to stick closer to home, you know. And um, I also felt that they had some inherited problems, you know, the mm. drugs and stuff. Everybody was kind of sleeping when I <laughs> was introduced to him backstage and they woke up, you know, but, and played well, but I just had a feeling that they weren't going to stay together that long. But it definitely, if I could have split my body in half and 
you know, done both. four arms that would have played with both. <laughs> so this I was what, about 71, 72, Neil? It was 72. 72. So it's funny because at that point, nobody was sort of documenting things with videotapes, right? It would have been incredible if you had a copy of that, but I guess that doesn't probably exist anywhere, right? You know, it, there's, there's a really funky recording of it that you can't, it's so un and off, you can't even hear what's going on that somebody found. And it's so bad that I can't even tell if it's me playing, if it's real, <laughs> but not even one picture, man. Yeah. Or cell phones, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. And I was like, I wish I had just one picture. It's strange because we document every moment of our lives now. And back then, it would have been incredible to have that. But uh, fast forward to like 73 or so, you know, you meet obviously your manager, Herbie Herbert, and, and talk to me about how Journey actually came together. Well, around in 72, um, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do after, you know, Santana uh, had disbanded as the band as, as it was and disbanded. And um, I was playing with um, Gregorico Rico from uh, Sly and Family Stone and Larry Graham, the bass player. Uh, and we had put together like a power trio that we were doing that was really funky and heavy, you know? And I had really high hopes for it. Uh, we're starting to compile some material and then Larry got cold feet at the last minute and wanted to do more of a straight forward um, R&B funk thing that became, you know, Grand Central Station. Uh, and so I played along with it and was hanging in Oakland for a while with Larry and Freddie Stone and learning how to play funk, which I had never really dug into before and um, learning a lot really quickly. Uh, hanging out in some cool clubs over there with those guys. And um, then, you know, we did the, the really short stint uh, at the Crater Festival, which I just saw a clip of the other day, just reminded me of it because I completely for, forgot, I'd completely forgotten about it. But it was Buddy Miles, Gregorico, Carlos, myself, uh, Buddy's bass player, Ron, uh, uh, and a few other, I think, Greg was there, Raleigh, and a few other people, uh, where they we did this live album, you know, uh, Carlos and Buddy Miles live in the crater in Hawaii. And so uh, trying to figure out what I wanted to do, I'm seeing, I'm watching this video the other day, and there was Herbie Herbert, and there was John Villanueva, and Jackie Villanueva, the guys that, that found me, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I kind of remembering it all, and Herbie uh, had approached me shortly after that. Uh, you know, he didn't know, he wanted to become a manager and this was in 72. It's in the middle of 72. And he says, look, kid, he goes, you know, I was a kid back then. He goes, I want to manage you and I want to wrap a band around your guitar playing. So I just went, I don't know what I want to do. So great, let's go. And at the time he was going to have a, he had a company that he formed called Spread Eagle Productions with Lou Bramey, his partner. And um, that was the beginning of the journey right then, even though we didn't know it was gonna be named Journey. Um, you know, it started right there. And then he started introducing me to different people he felt that would be good for that band and to wrap around myself shortly after that. And you do three records, Greg Raleigh and, and the guys, and, and it's more of, as we spoke about, more of a jam band, more of a fusion type of thing. And ultimately, the label, after three records, almost dropped you guys because they were like, listen, need to get a singer that's a bit more commercial here, right? Right. They were, they were uh, very frustrated with the fact that, you know, we weren't making radio hits, even though we were, you know, attaining a huge underground audience, you know? I mean, it was like, we played, man, with everyone from Cheech and Chong to Leonard Skinner, and I kid you not. We opened up for Thin Lizzy. We opened up for everyone. We opened up for Kiss. We opened up for everyone that known under the sun. And, you know, the audience, the audiences were always so-so. You know, we opened up for Ma Vishnu Orchestra. Did well with that audience yeah. uh, for obvious reasons. But um, until we met Leonard Skinner and we started, they took us under their wing and we started playing in front of big crowds uh, pre-Steve Perry. And we started getting three encores in front of them because it was a guitar, drum-based jam audience. 
you know, uh, things started really opening up. And so when you go back in the, inter the interviews where Greg and I were not so sure about making this new decision of adding a new lead singer is because we knew that we were just on the brink of, you know, doing something big. Yeah. What we started. And so uh, then unfortunately, you know, the catastrophe with, with Skinner and the plane, you know, uh, went down and that was over. And it was such a, a loss to everyone, man, everybody that loved them. And um, at that point, we, we just took Herbie's advice, which ended up being really great advice. Uh, and the thing, the story goes, which is really funny, is I had met Steve Perry years before that. And I didn't know, you know, what he sounded like, but he had approached me a couple times before when we were in the beginning, you know, when we were playing as the four of us uh, in Journey in, in the little clubs down in LA. And he said, hey man, I'm a singer, you know, and you know, are you interested in a lead vocalist? <laughs> I go, well, we already have a lead vocalist, it's Greg, you know? <laughs> and so, and then I played with this band, you know, it was like a spinoff of Santana Azteca for a second. I played one live show with them, which was, I thought hideous, but everybody else loved it. And it was at the Kabuki Theater in San Francisco. And um, I recall, recall Jackie Villanueva, the guy that found me, that was in our road crew, the Santana road crew. He's also the one that introduced me to Elvin and got me started. Um, he goes, hey, uh, there's a friend of my cousin's here. He's a singer and he needs a ride to his car afterwards. Can you give him a ride, please? And I said, yeah, sure. So I piled my equipment in my car and, and, and I gave him a ride and it was Steve Perry. And, Amazing. you know, <laughs> things so, don't happen like that organically these days, you know? Was, and, and I had no clue who he was or what he sounded like still. Nice guy. I just, you know, uh, it, it didn't click, you know, it didn't click for me ever to go, hey, do you have anything I can listen to or anything like that? But I had met him, you know, a couple of times before, years before. Uh, Herbie said, this is your guy. And then CBS has sent Herbie, uh, you know, a demo tape of, of his band that he just got signed with. And um, apparently the bass player had just died in a car crash and he was going to throw in the towel and forget about the music industry altogether. And, uh, you know, Herbie pretty much said, this is your new lead singer. But interesting and, enough, when you first heard that demo of Steve, you and Greg were a little bit on the fence about if he was the right guy for you, right? Well, and, and rightly so. Not that he didn't have a good voice, but the direction was so different yeah. than anything, you know, we had listened to or aspired to be at that point. You know, um, you know, and, and it, it was a great demo. We just weren't sure what would become of what we started, you know, if it would have any relevance or it even sound any way close to what we are, you know, at this point. Um, but, you know, it, it was a great move. And when Herbie brought uh, Steve out the first time, on tour for me to meet, we went up into my room and I had an acoustic guitar there. And I had, you know, compiled this music and I put together this song that ended, ended up being called Patiently. And, you know, it was kind of like a Zep, you know, Zep, you know, type verses and then a heavier section in the end. And um, we started working on it. And I think within 25 minutes, half an hour, you know, we had the song written. Amazing. And, went like immediate chemistry and then lights was after that and so him and I immediately clicked and then shortly after that with Greg too and everybody else. And did you ever think that direction wise the music seemed to be going in almost like a lighter direction at that point right because you again coming from more of a fusion jam band kind of thing did you sort of think about the direction with Steve and think I wonder if this is the way to go you just felt like it clicked right away for you? I, I tried not to think too much you know uh, because you're always going to second doubt what you're doing. And I tried to go directly to the source, the brain yeah. and the heart and just try to bypass thinking so much about 
what it was and what it's going to be, uh, but what it is at the moment. And, um, you know, I started, I just shifted gears for myself uh, because I'd never really written for a singer like Steve before in my life, you know? And I said, well, my role in this probably should be to convey as a guitar player, when I play a solo where the vocal, you know, where it ends and it goes to the guitar and it shifts gears, that should be where I'm, I should be taken off from the lead vocal yeah, and playing off that. And so that's the only way I can tell you that I uh, rationalized in my mind where I should be coming from. Mm. And so I started constructing, you know, in my mind without constructing solos, I didn't have to work at it, but I can tell you it's a lot harder to make a musical statement in a short amount of time than a long stretched out period of time for the type of player that I am. Yeah, I've heard you say that Perry actually thought you had to be a songwriter for a vocalist. So yeah, talk a little bit about that, because that was really, as you said, I mean, it was really all about the songs at that point. Um, you know, Steve, you know, obviously being the singer that he was, and he was a drummer also, and he played bass and a little bit of guitar. So every time he would strap on the bass or be singing, you know, you had the root note sitting there and you know as you know when you've got a, a a lead vocal melody and a main melody of a song that root note can change everything yeah. of what that melody sounds like and so him having a great idea about what he's hearing it made it easy for me to wrap my head around what he was hearing you know if he picked up the bass like if i didn't quite understand where the root was of where from where he was singing he was able to express that and and play it or even rhythm wise, you know, like this is the kind of feel I'm thinking. Like in Lights, he had more of a, a straightforward R&B. Like, you know, just kind of an R&B thing. And I kind of put more of a rolling, you know, stroll kind of thing to it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, wrap the, the, my Hendrix influences around the chords, the Curtis Mayfield type stuff. Um, and that's where that came from. But, you know, him and I were, had great chemistry from the get-go, definitely. No question. We'll talk about one of the greatest songs ever, Don't Stop Believing, how that song came about. It's, an, it's a great story. And some of the songs that are, you know, the most iconic songs are sort of the, the things that take the quickest to record and, and write. And sometimes they take a few hours and they go on to live in infamy forever, right? So talk to me about the story behind Don't Stop Believing. Don't Stop Believing, you know, we were compiling... New, new material for our, our new album that we we're going to go in and record um, with, with John Kane since he was just coming into the band. Uh, Greg Raleigh just exited. Uh, he had, you know, had enough of the, you know, touring and everything, and he was just ready to start a family. And so, you know, we'd been out on tour with the babies, and I'd been, you know, watching John for some time. And I felt that he was a good foundational player and a songwriter and you know played keyboards and guitar and I kind of like that and so we were putting material together in my studio I had over in Oakland that I had taken over for Larry Graham that became our clubhouse over there that we wrote everything and rehearsed and uh, we're coming up with new ideas and he came in with you know the verse chords you know uh, the pedaling chords and and he had the message, you know, that his father had given him, don't give up, you know, and don't stop believing in yourself. And so he came in with that idea and uh, the hook. And we just started going at it. It was like pretty much, you know, the three of us. And then later, all five of us, uh, as the song got closer to being formatted into, you know, a format. Uh, format and with all the parts and glued together, but um, it started with the verse, obviously. Started trying to come up with, you know, more of a Motown bass thing that rolled it along and between John and I, it ended up being what it was. And then it came, it would go, okay, where's it go from here? And then I came up with, you know, the B section, Strangers, Waiting, 
and and they go oh i like that okay so we we kept that the guitar chords kind of you know spoke out to what the vocal melody would be and um then we're put piecing it together and you know at this point it goes back to the top and i started playing that little guitar riff it's kind of like a symphonic you know train breakdown everybody calls it the train yeah. because that ended up inspiring the lyrics she took the midnight train going anywhere you know and so i came up with that riff first and rather than going straight back into a verse you know steve was going oh i like that let's leave that and we'll do the verse right after that again so you know we left that got into another verse uh did another b section then all of a time sudden it's time for a guitar solo and I didn't really know what I was going to play and in rehearsal I just didn't do one I just played the chords uh and then we went okay what are we going to use for a chorus so we went used the verse chords sang a completely different melody that Steve came up with and John over the end and it goes to the chorus one time in the end and that's it amazing uh, completely crazy you know um arrangement can when you, when you write a song like that because i think it's had over like a billion streams at this point and it's been used in everything from glee to rock of ages to so many it's such an incredible song do you know right away that that's a song that's gonna you know live forever do you feel did you feel like right after writing that all right this is a hit i mean this is i, I, mean, I said to the guys for real when we were in the mixing stages of the whole album we we're listening to that one back and I turned around and I go, there's something special here with this one. I go, this song, I think is gonna be massively huge. And at the time, you know, they released it out a single and it was always uh, a big song live for us to play, but it went, I think to eight in the charts. It didn't go to number one and it didn't become as big as it was until organically way later. And it was used like, and you say in the Sopranos and you know, all these different all the things. Yeah. There's a great version of, I don't know, there's a singer named Teddy Swims. I don't know if you heard his version. He just put it up like a week ago and it's already like millions of yeah, views you and know streams. What? He's amazing, man. Yeah. I reposted it when I saw it. I stuck it on my Facebook and people were just freaking out. He's, he's uh, you know, him and Chris Stapleton, I think are like the new singers out there that are just kicking major ass. Yeah, it's such a great it's version. Soulful. soulful. Yeah, amazing, amazing. So it's interesting. Even like Escape, I think you recorded like most of it in one take, right? Pretty much. Yeah. And, you know, our thing, what we did in the studio back in those days is we weren't working with computers, you know, it was live. And so we would really rehearse a lot to not thinking, oh, we're going into record. We knew we were going to record. But we thought in a sense of like, okay, if we're gonna go play this stuff live and just walk on stage and present it to our audience, how will we play it, you know? Mm -hmm. So I started thinking like that as a guitar player, if I'm gonna play fills in between the vocals, like on Stone and Love or whatever songs, I'm gonna incorporate, cause I'm the only guitar player at that time, you know, really lead guitar player, uh, except for the songs that John played, you know, you know, a few rhythms on. Um, and so I started playing stuff like that and we rehearsed like that. Then we would go in and we would record like that. We record like we're going to play live. And um, it was one take, two takes at the most. Three, you started sucking, <laughs> you know? And Steve was the same. Steve was one take, you know, from top to bottom. And barely ever even finished like redoing anything. Wow. Crazy. To think about how a record like Escape was recorded literally in like one or two takes. It's, it's amazing, by the way. The band had a lot of firsts. Let's talk about that for a minute, Neil. I mean, you were really the first band to tour stadiums. You also created the, these sort of giant screens that are today to this day are used at almost every concert. I think you were the first band to have be featured in like a video game and, and also the first band to really have sponsorship. So talk a little bit about that, because a lot of firsts for, for such an iconic band. <clears throat> well, you know what? 
The screens were definitely uh, Herbie Herbert's idea uh, to, you know, he was trying to figure, we were playing these giant stadiums and he wanted to help make it more intimate for the people that were way up in the nosebleeds in the back of the stadium. And so, you know, screens have been done before, you know, like Elvis Presley did screens, but never to, not to the magnitude of what he was envisioning. Like you'd have a screen, one monster, one in back of, you know, in the center of the stage and then on the sides as well. Uh, and so uh, we started the company Nocturne back then. The whole band, you know, we put money into it. We owned a, a piece of it. Uh, it went on to be massively huge company. Uh, we did screens for everyone, Michael Jackson, Madonna, everybody you can imagine, you two, that was on tour and, and you know, became a huge company. Then you I know, never thought you'd be in the giant screen business though, right? Uh, and really, <laughs> I don't know if it was that great of a business to be in, you know? I mean, yeah. you know, the equipment went out as fast as it came in technology-wise. So you'd spend all these millions of dollars on new equipment for one year and the next year, you'd have all your competitive, you know, competing companies here and they'd have the newest and latest and greatest. So you'd have to sell off your old stuff to a new company that's gonna come in, not the one that's competing with you that has endless FU money. Right. <laughs> and, and so it was, you know, like the fat, the more, the bigger the company became, the more money you took in, the more money you had to spend to, you know, bring it up to par, you know, with technology. Um, and so everybody wanted out. I, I stayed in longer than everyone else and ended up paying off pretty well in the end when we ended up selling it. Um, but yeah, it, that in the video game, the video game was Herbie Herbert's idea. And it's so funny to this day, I was never a video guy. I'm not a game guy. Like <laughs> right. I sit in front of the TV, you know. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of people are saying, hey, they should release this game and put it on the iPhone. Have everything else there. <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, we were the first to do that too. And sponsorship, yep, you're right. Uh, we, we got crucified for it actually in a Rolling Stone. You know, Herbie got us sponsored by Budweiser beer and out of St. Louis and they agreed at the point to come on and put brochures in everybody's seat of that, you know, introduced everybody that was coming to the concert at that point. We were playing theaters still uh, with Infinity when Steve first came in the band. We first started touring. And so there was a brochure that was left on every seat with who we are. And of course, sponsoring, being sponsored by Budweiser. You still have that brochure, by the way? I'm sure I do somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be a good, good thing to look at for sure. So it's interesting. So, you know, fast forward, you sell millions of records. You have this incredible career. 2017, you get nominated Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. How did it feel? Tell me a little of the backstory about that. And, you know, I think obviously you connected with Steve again at that point. Well, you know, um, I had, you know, I'm not one of these guys that sits around and like, you know, wishes that we would receive this award or even the only records you're gonna see in my house are the one you're looking at yeah. in the back here because the wall was kind of drab and this is where I do my, <laughs> my interviews from. And, you know, I never repainted this room and it was dark green. So I had to stick something up in the back of me, but- It looks good, Look, looks uh, good. You know, I just, uh, everything is in a case, in a box and, it's up in the attic. And so I wasn't one of those guys that wanted to look at everything that I've done and go, yep, that's me. That's what I did with the rest of the guys. Sure, I know it, I acknowledge it. And I'm really proud of, you know, what, what we've accomplished. But, you know, I, I prefer more to look at where I'm going and I kind of look at it. The only way I, I can feel like I'm moving ahead and not sitting in neutral or moving backwards is, by not resting on the laurels of what I've done. Of course. You know, you know respect it, but, but don't look at it every day and go, well, that's what I did. That's what I did. That's, yeah. you know, with these guys. And so, um, you know, it was really 
for it to happen, I was like kind of blown away after, you know, being, you know, upward and nominated, I think for two decades and never getting it. Like I think back when was the most likely time that we would get it. We mm. still never ever received a Grammy until recently. And it wasn't really a musical Grammy. It was a Grammy to be in the hall of fame, you know, <laughs> right. and that's kind of mind, more mind boggling than, you know, what we were talking about. It is, it uh, is. Seeing all the records that we sold. Yeah. And, you know, the popularity of them and how it continues to sell. But, you know, I, it's a political thing, man. I have to say, definitely, someone didn't like us <laughs> somewhere that was high up in the board. And that's what took so long. And I think until the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame opened it up for the fans who actually vote, I don't think we would have ever gotten in if it wasn't for our fans. We have the greatest fans in the world. And, but to reconnect with Steve that night was really very, very cool. And um, my wife was with me and she, uh, you know, instigated me going over there to say hello to him. And I go, no, I'm not gonna do this tonight. You know, we haven't spoken in a long time. She pushed, pushed, pushed. And I went, okay, I'll do it. And he agreed to see me. So I went in a room and we hung out. It was, it was actually very, it was a, a great, reconnection you know it is very emotional for both of us it ended up you know we ended up taking it on the stage and um you know it, there was obvious that there was still you know a lot of love there and respect uh and an emotional night for myself especially i felt and um i loved reconnecting with them i felt that after all was said and done in the past that, you know, we pushed all that stuff aside and the bad feelings about how it ended, whatever. Yeah. All, you know, the music behind the scenes with the VH1, right. but all that crap that was like, you know, put together and homogenized and all the best stuff left on the shopping floor, you know. Well, it's the media, go, right, at the end of the day, right? go after the drama, you know. Right, right. Um, I felt like a great new connection again with somebody that I love and that I was proud of um, working with all those years. And so that's what the evening was about. For me, it was more so than actually getting into the Hall of Fame was the reconnection with with everyone. Definitely. As and it's interesting. You've always said you've left the door open for him for, you know, to work on future projects either way. But um, let's talk about let's talk about the new record and the tour. Yeah, because obviously that's that's something that's coming up. So July seventh, July eighth, the record drops. You got a bunch of dates coming up. You got Vegas. I think you end in New York, right? Yeah. Yep. So talking yep. about the new record a little bit, I think it came out. As you mentioned, Randy played on it, uh, and and the record came about really during lockdown. So you really couldn't all be in you know in the same room. And Arnell's all the way in Manila, right? So it's not easy to get together when during the middle of a pandemic. It's you know it just started. Uh, out of really being locked down and kind of going buggy, you know. Uh, nobody was really sold on the idea of coming with a new record and a new album because we're going, well, what's the purpose of it, man? You know, <laughs> is anyone ever going to hear it? You know, they're expensive to make. We're, we don't want to make a cheap record, you know, that doesn't sound good. Uh, and what's the purpose of it? And so... I think out of just, if I could say anything good came out of the lockdown, this came out of the lockdown. And me learning how to play a little bit of keyboards came out of lockdown, learn how to play left-hand bass, you know, on the keys. Awesome. Uh, so I started like, you know, uh, recording loops from keyboards, like a nice, a cool, uh, you know, chord keyboard that had some great lump, you know, uh, drum loops in it and um, recorded a lot of my ideas so I could work off them, which a lot of them turned into journey songs, you know? And I'd never really written, you know, that much from keyboards at all. And um, so it just started there where I started compiling with my new cassette player, this guy right here, you know? <laughs> I've got thousands and thousands of ideas in my iPhone of, of musical ideas that I compile every day you know, and, and they're all in different genres and all in different veins. And when I go to play every day, you know, while we're home, I always manage to play a couple hours a day and just experiment. 
some of some of the days it comes out to be really wild stuff like Miles Davis and very you know uh, progressive and avant-garde. And some days it's funky. Some days it's it's hard rock. Some you know it's just I kind of play whatever the mood was. And so when I I I suggested to the guys I said you know I want to work. This is after our lawsuit. We're gonna you know get a new rhythm section here. And I suggested Narda Michael Walton and Randy Jackson because I had just worked with Narda uh, on my solo record universe and had a great experience with him as a writer, producer, and a drummer. And uh, so I started working with him, you know, because we live very close to one another and he's got his studio here. And he was the one person that I could get together during this lockdown. We actually, we could be in a room together, playing mm -hmm. together. And, you know, I've made quite a few records like that going back to my first uh, co- uh, you know, solo records I did with Jan Hammer and Jan playing drums and he's a badass drummer. Yeah. And, and not knowing that, getting together with him upstate New York when I first wanted to play with him, you know, we started writing together and I was playing guitar and he's playing drums. So we'd like arrange the stuff, lay it down like that, then later put the bass on, you know, and started building. Well, I just took that same format and, and started laying down all the ideas with Narda. Then I started putting the bass on. Sometimes I put the keys, some keys on. Then I go out and start singing on stuff, singing melodies that I was hearing, uh, laying down harmony parts that I was hearing with Narda. Uh, we sort of compiled everything like that. And then I would shoot it off to Jonathan and Jonathan would finish up the lyrics. Sometimes, you know, come with, you know, newer vocal ideas. And uh, we started working like that. Uh, I'd shoot off, you know, my ideas to Randy. Randy would replace my bass parts and kick my ass. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but, you know, it, it was fun way to make a record. I mean, because we weren't working just within the confines of a computer. It was us, you know, actually in a room. That's why I really believe this album is one of the best records we've ever made, man. Yeah. Uh, some people will say, well, sonically, I don't think it's like clean enough. It ain't this, it ain't that. No, you know what? I think it sounds perfect for what it is because it's like what we sound like live with a bit of polish on it. You know, uh, you know, the BGs are doubled and quadrupled sometimes to sound like, you know, records do, but there's some rough edges in it. You know, there's not too many guitars and it sounds like we sound like in arena or in a stadium. Sounds great. I love Let It Rain, by the way. It's such a heavy tune, such a great song. Yeah, you know, like that's a great song to bring up of where it came from. Yeah. You know, Narda was so cool to work with in a sense for me uh, to where, you know, so many people like songwriters, song songwriters that think melody, think nothing about anything but melody and lyrics they work within the confines of a computer and they go, no, that part doesn't fit, man. That's not, you're going to lose people on the radio. You're already chopping off your legs, your arms, everything right. is the way I feel because, you know, that's not how real music is written, you know, to me. And that's not where the, the actual heart and soul of the music lives. Mm. It lives with, with guitar and drums, man. And that's where I come from as a guitar player and a being a frustrated drummer myself. I, you know, I hear drums in my head as vividly as I hear guitar, you know, and if I, I, I can't get something out of Dean, I can emulate it and get somebody to play it. And so, you know, the thing with working with Narda is that, you know, as a producer and co-producing it with him, he never went, well, let's go back to what we did yesterday. We just kind of moved on every day. He said, well, mm. what do you feel like doing today? And he goes, well, what do you feel like doing? And I said, well, I have this riff, you know, that I was messing around with a whammy pedal that I never play through at home. Now, wah, wah, you know, kind of reminds me of Chaka Khan, you know, uh, and Rufus. And I go little Hendrix and Prince and Sly and Larry, you know, and and I've got this, this thing in my head 
that I think would be really heavy and funky and could be like a new, you know, a whole new chapter for Journey, uh, mm. something that we've never done before. He says, well, let's go play it. So I just, we started jamming. That's one take what's on the album. And my solo is a live solo. We didn't talk about the arrangement. I kind of laid it down as it was going down as I heard it. And, you know, it, there's no perfect arrangement to it. We just made the vocals fit. Then an artist started singing on it and he goes, well, I like this. And we worked on it little by little and we kind of just put it away. And then, you know, came time to demo it up a little more before we sent it to anyone. And we worked on the vocals a little more uh, before we sent it out to John and for him to finish the lyrics on it. And uh, I, I played the bass, you know, and I did my best Jack Bruce impersonation <laughs> of what I thought Randy would sound like playing it and sent it to Randy. And then, you know, Randy, like I said, just came in and he grabbed all of my stuff and just kicked ass on it. And, um, you know, it, a song was just born like out of nowhere. And it wasn't about talking about it or thinking about it. It was just about living it in the moment and actually just playing, two guys playing in the studio, like old school style. And so that's where that song came from. And, you know, Arnell, like loves this new direction, you know, that and holding on and come away with me and all day and all night, those four songs right there, you know, had we just come with one of those songs on this new album, there's more familiar sounding stuff on all the 15 tracks on the album. But had we only come with one of those, I felt like we would have lost everybody, you know, yeah, yeah. what is that? But the fact that we came with four new ones that are in that kind of the same kind of realm and the vein, it shows that there's a whole new chapter to journey no funkier and soulful. Yeah. Definitely excited to hear the record. I mean, as I said, it drops around the time of this podcast and the tour kicks off July 15th Resort Worlds in Vegas. You excited for the tour? Absolutely. You know, uh, Resort World is a new place uh, that we're excited to play. I hear it's like just you know, phenomenal sounding and state of the art as far as a facility, which, you know, so far I found at AEG, there's nothing AEG does half-ass. Yeah. You know, we're never going to play another shed, another little shed hole. You know, I mean, all their facilities are just top-notch sound-wise and they're, they're, you know, just what an upgrade. And I'm thrilled to be working with them. And we're doing it with orchestra again. Uh, the thing that's cool is we've done one other orchestral, well, actually we've done two orchestra shows in our lifetime. One was at the Hollywood Bowl that never got released because the then management never worked out the deal with the Hollywood Bowl that was acceptable. But we did play about a three hour show or two and a half hour show that encompassed a lot more of uh, our material from the earlier days, like from Infinity. So there's a lot of songs off Infinity on there, like Open the Door, Winds of March, uh, a lot of cool stuff that's very musical that lended itself really greatly to an orchestra. Uh, even stuff like uh, City of Hope that was off, uh, you know, our album with Arnell. Yeah. Uh, and orchestra, the rock stuff to me uh, that never got heard was better than the obvious ballads that you go, well, it already sounds kind of orchestrated, orchestrated stuff with the French horns and the bass trombones and, you know, cellos and a more beefier side of the orchestration shines in these songs. And so we're going to get to play all that stuff. We're also going to be playing um, uh, three or four new tracks from the new album uh, because it's in conjunction. Also, we've got like contest winners that are going to be flown in from uh, BMG uh in frontiers uh two labels that are doing this album for us uh and uh, it should be a great time man do you have a Vegas favorite journey song to play after all these years you know what i always go to lights and you know i'm a rocker i like rocking i know you're a rocker yeah uh, as a drummer uh but i love the connection with the audience 
And that song has become such become such a staple with the band and an epic song with the whole audience like lighting up and and, and just singing it too. Singing it, the whole audience. Like there's a clip on YouTube right now of a gig we did earlier this year at the Houston Rodeo. And we sold it out on the night that we played in seconds flat. And I was, I've never played this gig before. And I'm like thinking we're playing a rodeo. I go, what the fuck <laughs> is that gonna be about? And so we show up and we play it. And it was 72,000 people Incredible. that showed me again our strength of how big we are getting outside of the sheds, you know? And we, you know, newly taking over our merch and actually just getting our trademarks in place. You know, I found out after all these years that we've been lied to for years that nobody ever trademarked our merchandise. That's insane. Until just recently. And I see our merch every fucking where all over the world. Yeah. Billions of dollars we're talking about. Yeah. We've been ripped off from. And so I, you know, gotten away from where we were management wise, you know, promoting wise and even merch wise. And now things are just getting pulled back together. I have ripped everything off retail shelves because it was all bootleg stuff mm. and illegal selling. And so uh, we had new company come in future shirts and they came with a shitload of merchandise and they sold out. Yeah, at the Houston Rodeo, and it was the first big gig they played. They go, fuck, we never thought we would sell out. And so now, you know, we're doing numbers that I think that we would have never imagined that we're doing, not only selling out uh, the, the, you know, the arenas, but selling out of our merch every night. And so it's a testament in time how big this band really is and that we have really five generations of fans out there. Definitely. I see kids that are like five years old to men my age and women. Yeah, I was going to say the band seems to be bigger than ever. So congrats on that. Definitely, if you play an L.A. show or a New York show, I hope to meet you and hang in person, maybe with Randy. Uh, I, no I no would, L.A. shows on tap right at the moment. I'm not sure about the L.A. show. Which show are you speaking of? Well, if there's any shows in L.A. or New York, I hope to hang with you in person. Oh, come. <laughs> come out, man. For sure, yeah, for sure. Randy, Randy's talking about if you want to come to Vegas too. Randy's talking about coming the second week of our shows in Vegas. Amazing. Well, I'll, I'll chat with Randy, my neighbor, my good friend. Hope to hang with you soon. The new record. Pick up the new record. Check out the tour starting July 15th. Neil, it's a pleasure. Same here, Scott. I appreciate Same you coming on. You, man. you too. Look Hope to see you it. soon. Thank you, see man. You of course. Bye bye. Well, that was awesome. I could talk to Neil Sean for hours. Journey, 100 million records sold. What a great guy. Definitely catch him on the tour coming up. As I mentioned, July 15th starts the tour in Vegas. It goes all the way up to August 8th, East Coast. So hope to see you soon. I appreciate you tuning in. I am on Cameo. And if you like the show, please make sure to rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, anywhere that you find the show. It's very, very helpful to us. Stay healthy. I appreciate you tuning in and speak to you soon. Thank you. Hey, howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and Western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.